Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. We're your hosts, Brad Stahlberg and Steve Magnus. Brad, time for another podcast. What's going on, my man? Not much. Uh, I set the table well. Had a good session in the gym, took Ananda on a nice walk out in the woods for a bit, did a little bit of reading, and now I get to record with you. So uh, I'm ready to bring my A game to today's show. It's a good day. Exercise, some reading, primes you for the day. I've had a similar similar day, except mine was running, not lift, lifting heavy objects. So before we get into today's topic, I just want to remind listeners that if you want to support The Growth Equation, if you enjoy books, which is the topic, you get a access to a monthly book club if you join our Patreon group. And we bring in authors we who many of you will know of, like Dave Epstein. We've got some of the books that are our top 10 or top 20 books of the year. We've got those authors coming in shortly. So if you enjoy books, check it out. Patreon.com slash The Growth Equation. Join us. All right. Well, today we are the title of this show, going to talk about our top 10 books of the year. And um, the way that we're going to do this is in an interview format. So I don't know what Steve's choices are for his top five. Steve doesn't know what mine are. We're each going to unveil a book and then ask the other person some questions about it. All right, let's jump in. Brad, we'll start with you. Book number one for you. So... I'm going to group all five of mine as a tie for top five. It's impossible to rank order them. So in no particular order, the first book is a book called Bullshit Jobs by David Graeber. All right. So I actually had this on my to read book but I list, but I haven't gotten it yet. So why don't you provide the, the uh, quick summary and then tell me, you know, what caught your interest in it? So the quick summary is David Graeber, who tragically uh, recently passed away, I believe only in his late 50s or early 60s. When, when he did this work, he's trained as an anthropologist and he's studied all kinds of cultures and he wanted to study corporate culture. So he went into all of these large organizations and what he basically found is that more than 40% of the average white-collar worker's day is what he classified as bullshit. And his definition of bullshit is the person has no idea why they're doing what they're doing, and they cannot tell you how what they are doing is valuable to any meaningful goal. And 40% of the average white-collar worker's day he um, he proposed is made up of bullshit. And from there, you can imagine his diagnosis on depression, burnout, degradation of community. So many of society's ails, Graeber argues, stems from all the bullshit that we do in our jobs. And part of the reason that I love this book is because he gave me a language for stuff that I've seen in organizations and I felt, but I haven't been able to talk about. So one of my favorite examples in the book is what he calls the bullshit layer in an organization, which is when you have some VP who's not really sure what their job is, but they want to feel status and powerful. And the way to do it is to have a bunch of people report to you. So they go out and hire 25 people to report to them. And now you have a whole structure in the organization of 25 people whose whole job it is to go to meetings to talk about stuff so that then they could report back to the VP. So he calls this like the bullshit minion team. And I've done work with enough leaders and enough organizations to know that especially in some larger, more entrenched bureaucracies, this is 100% how it goes. And it was really great for him to, no pun intended, call bullshit. (laughs) 
That's uh, that's fascinating. I mean, it's something that I'm sure every listener who's worked in pretty much any job um, can can relate to there. And it really is. It's like a. It's you think about it, but it really is this game of um, status, hierarchies, pecking order. Like we are not very different than our our great ape ancestors. Right, and he talks a lot about how in certain organizations, the skill set that gets you to rise is not actually doing work, but creating the illusion that you're doing work. (laughs) And I just love that because it's so true. And I think then you have this problem where the leaders of large organizations are people that don't actually know how to do the work because they've been too busy engaging in corporate kabuki pretending that they're doing the work while actually just doing bullshit, such as office politics, to get promoted into their leadership role. So it was wildly entertaining. Um, As someone that left corporate America a long time ago, I obviously found it validating and kind of like an I told you so book. Yet I also coach a lot of people in corporate America who are quite happy there, happy enough there. And I think some of the implications for those type of people are that to the extent that you can craft your job to identify what are the bullshit parts of my job and what aren't, and then to minimize time, energy, and effort on the bullshit, the happier you'll be. Now, it doesn't mean that you're going to get promoted, which is a problem, which then lends to like the second big takeaway I had, which is if you're in an organization where you get promoted for doing bullshit work, not the real work, it's probably a good sign to find another organization to work in. Because all of our jobs have bullshit. I mean, there's tons of bullshit in publishing. Um, it's just on us to identify what that bullshit is and then to do the bare minimum to get by while focusing our energy and effort on the real work. And um, I think that was a really big point. So again, just to have some language for this, to be able to say, here's stuff that matters, here's bullshit, and how much of my time is on bullshit and how can I cut that down? Yeah, that's an interesting uh, piece there. That, and I think that that goes beyond our our jobs. I think that's a human condition thing that we often do work to appear like we're doing work, right? Instead of actually making progress. I mean, you see the same thing in the, the exercise world. Go put something on Instagram, look like you're getting better, et cetera, et, yep. et cetera, et cetera. And then the last thing I'll say in this book that just really. Um, was like intellectual brain candy for me as it was published in 2019. So universal basic income was a thing for sure, but it it hadn't like picked up the full Andrew Yang steam yet. And um, what Graeber said is that as more technology does more of our work, society will be faced with this choice where either we'll tell people that the key to a good life is to have a job And all these jobs will just be bullshit because the robots will be doing all the actual work. So people will be going to work to pretend to work because society says it's good to have a job. Or we'll realize that this is a problem and we'll free people to create art, community gardens, do things that might not be as quote unquote productive in the economy, but that will be okay because machines are doing that work. Um, We don't have the time to pick apart that argument and to kind of play devil's advocate and pro and con it. But I think it's really interesting to think about that if you accept as a base premise that over time, more things will be um, made automatic, are we going to force humans to show up and do bullshit work or are we going to um, free people to live their lives and find value elsewhere? And again, that's an oversimplification, but I think it's an interesting thing to think about. Like, what's the point of having a massive jobs program if the jobs don't actually do anything but bullshit? Whereas you look back at like FDR and like the great, I forgot the name. It's like the great works and arts program out of the Great Depression. His job program was having people like build parks that people could go play in and get uh, create green spaces and take care of trails. And that's not bullshit. That's real. So how can we create a world where if we are going to tie so much of your life to your job, that the jobs are actually meaningful, not just showing up and like 
sitting in front of your computer fake working all day because some machine's doing the actual stuff. Or progress to a, a world where so much of our meaning isn't tied to our job. Yeah. Right. So, okay. That yeah. sounds fascinating. Um, in Nordic countries where there's more of a social safety net, there's a theory that so much of the great like um, electronic dance music comes out of those countries because these young people don't feel pressured to have bullshit jobs. So they feel like they're more able to take risks and make music. And that's why you have so many of these DJs coming from those countries. Um, haven't looked too much into it, but I think it's just, again, it's interesting. What are we actually promoting? What are, what are the policies promoting? So that's it. Bullshit jobs, David Graeber, bright blue cover. I absolutely love the book. Graeber's got another book coming out um, that he had written with a, a collaborator before he passed away later this year. Uh, I'm forgetting the name, but that book is like a sapiens kind of um, counter argument. And I've just read a few articles that like the publisher is having to reprint all these copies in advance because that book's going to sell like hotcakes. And I know I'll be buying it because I love bullshit jobs. It's the dawn of everything. Yes. There you go. When does that come out, Steve? It's already out. See, I'm a, I'm a Luddite. I guess I've been doing too much bullshit. All right. So, Steve, what's your top book of 2021? All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hedge my bet a little bit like you did and just say there is no top book. I'm just going to give you five in no particular order. So, the first one of my random five is the... Knowledge Gap by Natalie Wexler. All right. Tell us about the Knowledge Gap. So this one is interesting because it's an area I generally don't explore, which it is basically the author explored, um, went into different elementary school classrooms and explored this kind of what's called a, the reading war which is a battle over how to teach kids to read. And it's been raging for the last, I don't know, 25 years, right? Where you have essentially two sides. One thinks that this particular style and curriculum is the best. The other thinks this other thing over here is the best. Um, and one side has, has generally won, but it's interesting because it's the side that goes against basically everything that uh, educational psychology, cognitive psych, all, all the science points in the other direction. So it's this fascinating exploration of a couple different, I think, again, human problems, which is we have this, this battle of like, well, the research and science says this, but we have like People go in the opposite direction because of a variety of different factors. And then the other interesting thing that really stuck out to me is how much of our expertise or our knowledge is siloed. So, so in the book, you know, she talks about how this kind of reading war took exploded once a couple of people who actually like research scientists and universities who actually do the work on understanding how kids and everybody learns and how the brain works and all that stuff started look finally going into classrooms and, and looking at curriculum. And they're like, what in the world are you guys doing? Like, this is stuff that we disproved, you know, 50 years ago. So can you give an example of one of those things where like the trend over the last five, 10 years has been X, but the actual answer is Y? Yeah, so it, it it's basically comes down to, well, let me think, let me give an example. Um, here's an example, is that context matters when you're looking at reading, okay? So what I mean there is for the past, I don't know, 10 years or whatever, uh, teachers and curriculum has really pushed towards like just teaching the skill and the content doesn't really matter whatsoever. But what the science and the data clearly shows is that, you know, people don't just learn to read based on the skill alone. They learn by understanding like the context, context around it. 
So integrating like history and social studies and different topics into reading matters more than just saying like, here's a book that is at, you know, this level, like just start reading it, even if it has no, no uh, flavor behind it or whatever have you. So did the book leave you feeling like there are particular changes that you'd want to make in your own life or that will help you in your coaching practice in terms of how individuals can close their own knowledge gaps? Yeah. So I think it, it comes back to something that I, I see as, again, making sure you're not siloed and then also looking at like the incentives. Right. So one of the reasons that we have this this problem in education is because the incentives are aligned towards, well, creating curriculums are the only place you can make money. So there's a real incentive to tie yourself, like if you're education leader or expert or whatever, tie yourself to one system and then defend it to death because you need that gravy train to keep going. So you have to sell it. Right. So in my own world of of coaching or whatever have you, it really makes me step back and think, okay, like we're all, you know, everyone, if you're writing a book, doing a podcast, even if you're a scientist doing a researcher and you have your pet theory, like the incentives in our modern culture are kind of lined towards making a name, like selling your product and like tying yourself to that idea or concept to you know gain notoriety and then money off of it. So it's really if I'm evaluating whether to use some practice or whether something has value um, that I'm reading or learning about, it's really taking time to step back and be like, well, you know, what does the research say? What do the practitioners say? The same stuff we talk about all the time in terms of our our BS filter, but it really kind of drove home that message. Yeah, I think that's really good. Is the person with the idea claiming it's a proprietary idea? And if so, why? And if there's not a there there other than they want to sell something, then perhaps that idea is, to quote David Graeber, bullshit. Exactly. The way I like to look at it is, are they building a cult or not? All right. That that reminds me of another book that we both love this year. And I don't know, I'm not going to do any spoilers about this, but it reminds me a little bit of Think Again by Adam Grant on how hard it is to change our mind on ideas uh, when our identity gets connected to those ideas. Very true. I was going to talk about that book as well. So we can just check that one off. All right, let's go. Think Again. <laughs> Give us the summary and I'll ask you some more questions. Well, you read it as well, so maybe we can have a dialogue of of what you think is most interesting. I mean, the quick summary is that it's how to keep an open mind, how to change your beliefs, how to not get stuck is kind of how I see it. It's it's how to develop the cognitive flexibility, um, which I think, again, in our modern context is something that is of eminent value because modern incentive society kind of pushes us towards like being very rigid and stuck on our beliefs or or our ideas and almost rewards us to not you know not change our mind i mean it in in politics to use an example like it's seen as a uh, a detriment you're labeled a flip-flopper if you change your mind so all the incentives are aligned against it. Yeah. I um, I think that it is the book that I wish that a large portion of this country would have read prior to our intense levels of tribalization, um, tribalization, excuse me, tribalism in this nation where, although tribal a nation, that is another way to put America right now, but where, um, where so many people can't think again. Uh, So to me, this book is like key for young people that are forming their identity to to have some space between their ideas and their identity. Something that you talk about all the time is you can fall in love with an idea, but you can't marry it. Because once you marry that idea, then it blows up your whole world to release from it. And as a result... You've got people that can't change their minds when the evidence changes. 
And I think that that is on display really throughout the world, but we know our country best here in America right now um, as it relates to COVID, election security, uh, so many issues. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's kind of my motto right now is don't get stuck <laughs> and don't get tied to, to, to something too much because our ideas or our beliefs and values shift with um, whatever, whatever we tie it to. So it's really, again, not to make it seem like modern society is crazy, although it kind of is, but you have to put up safeguards to make sure that you don't fall down in this rabbit hole. And I think Adam Grant's book, Think Again, is a great way to look at some of these safeguards and it, and give some examples. If I remember correctly, um, you give an example of Daniel Kahneman, the famed you know scientist who who essentially refuses to let his beliefs become part of his identity. And that's probably something that keeps Kahneman grounded versus someone with similar notoriety who kind of loses himself in fame or loses himself on the internet, which is a phenomenon we talk about all the time. Another thing from Adam's book that I found to be really practical was he has this heuristic for engaging in a conversation with someone else, which is if you ask that person, what would it take for you to change their mind? Excuse me. What would it take for you to change your mind? and that person can't come up with anything, it's not worth having any kind of debate with them. Uh, that has helped me draw a lot of boundaries over the last year. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> um, yes. I mean, I have an example where I've asked someone that is quite close to me if such and such person came out of such and such building and shot me in the leg, would you still vote for that person? And their response was, well, it depends on why he shot you. And then I said, let's pretend that I was just walking outside and he shot me. Well, he would never do that. He would never just shoot you. There, there must have been a reason. Did you take something from him? And at that point, the answer became clear that um, this person was down a bizarre rabbit hole that no amount of rational conversation was going to help pull them out of, which is really sad. It is sad. But I think that is, you know, that's uh, you got to know you got to know when people are open and when people are shut. And the other thing that I took away from Grant's book that I've used, utilized a lot is, you know, for people who have even that door opened a little bit, if you can find it, is like, don't put them on the defensive. It's when we resist, we, we reinforce. So if you're actually trying to change minds, don't people like our instinct is to like argue, but it doesn't work. All right. Think Again by Adam Grant. The man sold bazillions of books, so make it bazillion one. It's a great book to pick up. All right. All right. My next, next book, a little bit too much testosterone here. My next book is Wintering by Catherine May. All right. I'm actually in the middle of this one right now. So you're I know gonna... why, because we are reading it for our Patreon book club and Catherine is joining us from the UK to discuss this book in, um, well, looking at my calendar, just a few days after this podcast is published. So it's not too late. You can join Patreon today and hop on on December 9th to hear us talk to Catherine. Get on board. Um, we're big time getting people from the UK over on Zoom. All right. Um, give us the quick synopsis of this one, Brad. So Catherine May is a writer and professor, and basically her life kind of started going not as she would have hoped. There was some illness, there was some job dissatisfaction, there were some parenting challenges, and all this stuff came crashing down on Catherine and um, she realized that she needed a winter. And for her, a winter meant a time to hunker down, to only focus on essentials, to not worry about production, but just worry about staying warm and staying alive. And that set her off on this journey to explore a more cyclical way of having a relationship with time. And she went across the world and visited some really interesting places during winter 
to see how different people do winter in different places. And I think out of this book came this beautiful concept of if we all have winters in our lives and it's okay. It's a part of being a human. COVID lockdown was a huge winter for so many people. And I think Catherine's book really helped me and my wife like have a language for what was happening. Um, for diehard growth EQ Brad Steve fans, if you think about stress plus rest equals growth and peak performance, this is like the deep dive on the rest part of that equation uh, written by someone that can just write the lights out in more of like a memoir-esque kind of way. Yeah, it's it's very fascinating so far. I'm enjoying her, her story. And as you said, she is a phenomenal writer. Yeah, it's a much softer look at winter. There's definitely science in there. She goes and reports, talks to scientists about, you know, like different species in winter and how humans can learn from those species. But um, there's also just a lot of personal narrative in there. And I think the biggest thing that most people, I hope, take away from the book is that winter is a normal season. And if you fight winter, you're fighting yourself. And without winter, there is no spring. And you have to go through these periods of winter where you shut things down, where you don't focus on growth in order for some kind of renewal to happen at the other end. And I finished reading Catherine's book thinking like, how much of what turns into true like clinical depression is people thinking that it's not okay to have a winter. So then they fight against the winter and then their body shuts down even more instead of just accepting winter as a season in our lives. Um, and I thought that for that reason alone, it should make my list of, of top five books. Love it. I think it gets back to one of the core concepts of our work and also others is the seasonality of, of life, you know, and it's, it's an important concept. All right. So I've named two, you've named two back to you. I'm going to let you take think again. I love Adam. It was in my top 10, but it didn't make my top five. Sorry, Adam, but it did make Steve. So we're still talking about it. <laughs> All right. Let's go with Escape from Freedom. Ooh. Eric Fromm. Yeah. I say ooh because, uh, well, who recommended this book to you, Steve? I don't know. Some bald guy who deadlifts too much and then tweets about his deadlifting now. And, you know, it's, it's, it's just too much. I don't tweet about my deadlifting. I simply posed the question to Twitter the other day that imagine if people were as exciting about deadlifting and gardening as they were about NFTs, to which the best response came from one of my, uh, one of my coaching clients who said, bro, it's all a simulation, <laughs> which got me cracking up. And then, of course, some other people that are like, you'll be deadlifting in your basement while we're all getting rich. And I'm like, oh, that's fine. Sounds about, sounds about right. Um, all right. So I recommended Escape from Freedom to Steve because Eric Fromm is one of my favorite thinkers. And this is one of my favorite Eric Fromm books, although there's like eight that could make the cut. So Steve, why don't you tell us about Escape from Freedom? And it's such a wide ranging book. Why don't you tell us about kind of what it meant to you on an individual level and also on a cultural societal level? Yeah, so it's a it's a fascinating book because it goes all over the place, um, and I'd suggest sticking with it because you'll go down very uh, a lot of different uh, rabbit holes. But it was written in 1941, I believe. So it was kind of this answer to you know what facilitated what led to the rise of Nazism, but it 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 does it in a way that looks at freedom and a a kind of freedom versus structure and authority. And instead of just sitting here and being like, oh, freedom is great. Fr <laughs> Excuse me. Fromm has this wonderful uh, distinction where he says freedom can be split into freedom from and freedom to. And I think that is, again, we're talking about language to use. I think that's a fascinating thing. And, and essentially... From, you know, I'm going to simplify here, has freedom from as being more of kind of a negative freedom and freedom uh, to is more of a, a positive um, 
freedom, if you will. All right. And tell me about what you thought on the societal level. And I asked that um, not just to go meta for the sake of going meta, but Fromm wrote this book um, right on the tail end of the Holocaust and Hitler's authoritarianism. Yeah, I mean, I think that's why it's a, a actually a pretty pertinent book for right now, <laughs> because it 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 kind of grasps at what I'd call what I'd say is like needing more new like the concept of of nuance in society and understanding that often we refer to things as like good or bad and have these kind of black or white, very distinct things. And Fromm's kind of analysis brings it back where it's like, no, there's like nuance here. Like people can go either way. Like we need to have like how our society is structured, like influences which way we go, what way, who can like rise to power, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I think that um, that's all spot on. And I think there's this other layer, which is like, there's this constant tension between freedom and security or freedom and rigidity. And if you have too much security, you feel locked in and you want to be more free. But if you have too much freedom, you can feel massive anxiety because it's like, well, I have no structures to help guide me. I have nothing to do. And I think when people are feeling a lot of freedom and when institutions that normally give people that structure break down or aren't as popular, it's a perfect time for a strongman leader to come along and be like, well, I'll help give you meaning or I'll help you not feel so insecure and I think that's what's happening around the world right now. Um, I don't think there's any doubt that there is some correlation between like postmodern thinking and the rise of strongman dictators. Because um, postmodern thinking, like to elaborate as I understand it on the terms, is kind of like everything is subjective. There is no objective facts. There is no objective reality, which is like total freedom, which causes a lot of anxiety. And then, well, what's the opposite pendulum swing? A dictator, someone that tells you this is exactly how it's going to be and you can trust me and you're safe with me. And I think that there's a lot of out of whackness between like good freedom supported by good institutions versus, you know, total freedom versus total security. Yeah, I mean, and there's there's a lot of good recent science or psychology on this, right? Feel a ton of uncertainty. What happens, like we kind of freak out, we get that angst, then we re reach for closure wherever we can. And in this case, that closure is coming from, you know, an authoritarian figure. So we accept that because it gets rid of the angst and anxiety we feel. So, yeah, I think, again, that's why I think I enjoyed this book is because it was one of those timeless pieces that is ahead of its time and still has meaning, you know, gosh. 80 years later. Yeah. And what Fromm would say is probably it was behind its time, you know, because it happened after Hitler and Nazism. So it just goes to show that like history really does repeat itself. Yep. Sure does. All right. Next book. One more thing on an individual level. I think it's important to not just get all meta and doomsday here about the state of the world. Uh, I think that it's a good heuristic for life is you want to have a balance between freedom and structure. And you could apply that if you're an athlete to your training. If you're an individual, you could apply that to not wanting to be involved in too many dogmatic structures, but wanting some, whether it's a nuclear family, a religious group, a support group, a book club, a community gym, a running club, you name it. If your whole life is that stuff, well, you're going to feel like your whole life is controlled by these structures. But if you have none of that, you kind of feel like you're floating alone, which is very angst provoking. So um, I think both culturally and at, at a personal level, it's really good to have some balance between um, like rigidity and freedom. Yeah, no, I'd agree. I'd agree as well. I think a lot of that in terms of um, what happens as we progress from, you know, 
teenagers, students, et cetera, to adults, right? Some of us excel because we have a little bit of freedom and a lot of structure. Then we go to a lot of freedom, not much structure, and can all go to hell. Ooh, so it's there's, like there's your next book. What? There's your next book, Escape from Freedom for Parents. <laughs> That's right. Probably sell a million copies. Um, all right. So my next book is, it crept up into the top five. Initially, it was in the top 10. This is a good time to plug. We've got our top 21 books of 2021 will be published in the newsletter by the time that you are, no, a day after you're listening to this podcast. You all, if you're listening to this podcast the day it came out, this is just the beginning. We've got 11 more books for you in the Growth EQ newsletter. You can get it on thegrowtheq.com. If you're listening to this after Thursday, well, it's already on the web for you. So... We've each got 10 books on that list, plus a bonus. This book started out not even on my list. And then I was looking at my bookshelf, and I'm like, wait a minute, this book should be on my list. Then I was preparing for this conversation today, and I'm like, you know what? This book is in my top five. So this is the kind of book where the more I think about it, the more impactful it becomes. And the book with all that buildup is The Extended Mind by Annie Murphy Paul. So... What is the extended mind? It's really simple, yet so profound. We like to think of the mind as the brain, which is this thing inside our skull that dictates our consciousness and our personhood. Annie Murphy Paul, in pages and pages of research, basically shows that none of that is true. It couldn't be further from the truth. Our brain is an organ, just like our liver, our heart, our kidney, it impacts consciousness, but without the world around us, there would be no consciousness. So when we think about identity and who we are, it is not our brain. It is our brain in combination with the people around us, the projects that we pursue, the place that we live, the pollutants in the air that we breathe, the way that we use our bodies, the hours that we sleep, what we eat, what we drink, what we watch, what we read. Our consciousness is everything that we interact with. So, of course, I love this book because without using the word Buddhism in it once, Annie Murphy Paul writes why Buddhism is true, part two. Um, there is a self, but there is also no self without everything around it. And that, to me, is what this book is really about. And it came at a time when neuroscience is kind of like having peak neuroscience moments where everything is a pathway in the brain and we're starting to think of things in a more brain-based way, which has tons of advantages. But I think what Annie Murphy-Paul does is she says, hold on, hold on. Let's separate the brain from the mind. And the brain is this organ inside your skull. And the mind is the combination of that organ with everything else. And for that alone, uh, the book's in my top five. Love it. I thought it was a fantastic book as well. So just recently. Of course you did. It was a little dense for my liking, which is I'm sure why you loved it. I mean, she is a science writer and there is no shortage of like deep science writing. So if you're into like learning about obscure studies with clever methods, then you're really going to love this book. Steve's pumping his fist. If you just want to like get the big picture, I still recommend that you read the book. At times you might feel like it's dense, but as I said... Started not in my top 10, made my top 10, moved into my top five. So getting through the density is well worth it. But if you're like a science nerd, science reader, you're going to eat this up. Yep, exactly. And you know what? We had a podcast about this book already. That's right. How did I forget? I, you know, I'm, I'll tell you why I forgot. I didn't drink coffee. So my brain remembered, but my extended mind is a little bit lazy because I didn't have coffee today. All right. So I won't belabor this this book, but I think it's fantastic. Um, I loved it. Very dense with science, but but also readable. So I would I would highly, highly recommend this. And if you're interested in hearing our thoughts more, go back and listen to our podcast on the extended mind. Do you know what episode that was, Steve? Actually, I do, Brad. It is called The Mind Outside of Your Head. We released it September 1st. 2021. So go back, check that out. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. All right, Steve, book number four. 
All right. So while we're going down the the science rabbit hole, I'm gonna go all the way down the rabbit hole. Oh God, I need to get my cappuccino and, and tell you that my next book is a book called The Hidden Spring by Mark Solms. Do you have the subtitle on this book? I can look it up real quick, but I, I remember have- when you first told me about this book. I looked at the subtitle and I said, that's a Steve book. Ah, here it is. A Journey to the Source of Consciousness. All right. Well, there we have it. I'll have a triple espresso to get my extended mind prepared. So, Steve, what is the source of consciousness? We've all been waiting. Uh, You'll have to read the book because it's very difficult to understand. But if... If you want a deep dive down the latest in neuroscience and brain stuff, as you said, Brad, neuroscience is having its moment. This book does the best job of anything I've read of explaining and exploring that moment in full detail and going down some rabbit holes. But what's most interesting is a a theory on the brain that is extremely confusing, but this book does a really good job of explaining, which is called the free energy principle, which basically says our brains um, developed to resolve uncertainty. And they are, you know, made whatever to reduce entropy. And you do that through a variety of mechanisms, but... It's really fascinating. If you enjoy brain stuff, I won't belabor it, but goes into feelings, what the role is, how they guide behavior, how they tell us how we're doing, and this feedback mechanism, and all sorts of interesting, fascinating stuff. If you aren't interested in science, then don't read it because it's dense. But if you are, you'll enjoy it. Wow. All right. Well, that sounds really good. Is it a book that I can understand, Steve? I think so. All right. I really like the title, The Hidden Spring, um, because it sounds like consciousness is hidden somewhere in there and out there. <laughs> That's the moral of our past few books. It's in there. It's out there. It's everywhere. And suddenly you're back at Buddhism. All right. That's, that's just what you want. All right. So... Um, What's like the one most practical tip from that book before we move on? Um, practical tip, huh? Yeah. Hmm. I don't know. I mean, so I here's what I would say. The most practical tip is, um, and I don't remember it off top of my head, but it's basically we have these different forms of arousal to prepare for dealing with uncertainty or dealing with chaos or a threat or what have you. And I thought it gave a great example of um, how knowing what way we're, or teaching, training your brain, mind, whatever you want to call it, what way to go is kind of dependent on, um, on how how good you are at uh, reading and understanding the feedback your body's sending us. So the takeaway I got from that is like, you know, feelings, emotions, got to learn how to read them, listen to them, figure it out. I thought you were going to say that we're having our first proprietary growth EQ exercise program called the free energy principle. You know, we can do that too. I'm sure it would sell well. (laughs) My fourth book is not at all complicated or complex. It makes the case that we should just do simple things, live more simple lives, take care of the earth and the people around us. And the book is called The World Ending Fire, and it's a collection of essays by Wendell Berry. I went on a little bit of a Wendell Berry kick this year. I think this book is the greatest entry point because it's so broad, both in time horizon. It includes essays uh, from like the late 60s, early 70s, all the way to the 2000s from Wendell Berry. For those that don't know, Wendell Berry grew up on a farm in Kentucky. Uh, Clearly, if you read the book, you'll see he's a phenomenal writer. 
he got this great literary career off to his start. He was a professor in New York City teaching MFA program stuff, running in literary crowds. And he basically said, this all sucks. None of this is real. I'm going to go back and live on my farm and farm with deep care in um, a very ritualistic way. So he moved back to his farm in Kentucky and he's still got that farm and he's been producing hundreds of essays. He writes fiction, he writes nonfiction. And this book is really an ode to living that kind of life. Um, Wendell Berry says that so much of the corporatization and complexity and interconnectedness of the world has unintended consequences that we don't often see. And if the story of the last 200 years has been bigger is better uh, since the Industrial Revolution, then Barry says, maybe we've gotten too big. And maybe for both humans and for the planet, we need to go smaller. And what does it look like to be more of a minimalist, to have a smaller life? And um, of course, the irony is, according to Wendell Berry, and I tend to agree in many ways, uh, a real small life can also be a real big life. Ooh, like how I did that? Man, that was smooth. I'm impressed. You're getting good at this podcasting thing. I try. All right. So what? So that's fascinating. How? And I, I tend to agree as well. How do you apply that to your everyday life? I think that... It goes back to something that you and I have been discussing a ton. We've recorded a recent podcast on. We've written about um, this notion of doing real things in the world. So having some kind of practice, whether it's lifting weights, running, gardening, sculpting, making pottery, knitting, where you are in direct contact with what you're producing, there are no outside influences on it, and you can see the results right in front of your face. Um, I think that's so important to staying grounded because otherwise you live in like la la land. And I think that this Wendell Berry S principle is going to become more important as more of the world moves into the metaverse or like this notion that more of life will just be online. Uh, I think that our species didn't evolve to live online. So I think we're going to have to have these real grounding experiences and it might require swimming upstream. So for Wendell Berry, it meant bucking the literary community and moving back to Kentucky. And I don't know what it will mean for you and I, Steve. Maybe one day we're completely off the internet and we're holding weekly growth EQ groups on some farm somewhere and we run deadlift and write in between. Tell you what, wouldn't be so bad if, if you can tell me how that would pay the bill, sign me up. That also sounds a little bit like a cult, so we'd have to be careful. But um, I think that that's, that's the big thing. It's like... You know, I read this book a month before Facebook changed its name to Meta. And I remember thinking, like, I bet Wendell Berry's so angry right now. There you have it, folks. Brad is secretly trying to develop a cult, an in-person cult for the growth equation. I warned you now. Just watch out. We're going to be drinking nothing but ketones. That's a joke, by the way, for new listeners. Oh, man, what a world that we live in where I have to say that that's a joke for new listeners. Um, we will not be drinking ketones. <laughs> you know, but I do, I do think that, you know, what you described there is going to be a, a greater and greater problem is how to navigate a world that is now kind of split and fragmented and one that we didn't evolutionarily develop to handle and make sense of. How would how do we do that? And I do think, you know, to use your word, Brad, being grounded and especially grounded in real things with real people is gonna be ever, ever more important. How do you structure that? How do you create that and not get lost on the internet? Sounds like a book, but someone could write Give but wait the practice of groundedness someone did write it the least grounded thing i've said all day this podcast is just devolving before no this is a great podcast steve um so wendell berry the world ending fire um really good book about going small berry talks about it 
in the guise of farming, but um, man, the lessons can apply to anything. It's just about having the mindset of a craftsperson and treating life as a craftsperson treats their craft, whether that's a relationship, a business that you're starting, uh, a sporting pursuit, uh, some kind of creative pursuit, being a leader. And of course, if you're a farming or you're into gardening, farming, working with the land, then this book will be a, a bullseye for you. All right. All right, Steve, what's your fifth book? It is Wanting by Luke Burgess. What do you want? It's a good question. If Did I, Luke help you answer it? If I subscribe to Burgess's uh, theory or his claim in this book, what I want is highly, highly dependent on others. So his his kind of thesis is uh, basically humans learn through imitation to want the same things others want. So it's 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 a it's another one of these timely uh, books that I think is important at this juncture in time as we sit around and get lost on the internet. Maybe this is our theme of our our top books list. And maybe we're oh, trying- wait until you hear my fifth book, Steve. You we're trying to know. prepare. You're setting me up perfectly. Oh man, well, perfect. But anyways, um, and it it it's interesting because we all know, and we've written about it, we've talked about it, like how other people, role models, society, etc., influence our own thoughts, actions, behaviors, and beliefs. But this really put a lot of structure around it, and um also had some kind of counterintuitive uh, claims or solutions in there. For example, often we talk about like the differences on, well, the problem is like people are divided and different. And Burgess kind of makes uh, the claim that it's not the differences that are necessarily the problem. It's when more people are alike, then they feel threatened, and then they force those differences. So it's just kind of some interesting takeaways in there as well. Wow. That is, uh, that's really interesting. Also like an extended mind kind of theme again, you know, the, the forces outside of us influence us. Um, so what I swear, I'm not just saying this to plug groundedness again, but how do we stay ground? Like how do we swim against the stream of wanting I know there's another book that I wouldn't be surprised if it's on your top 10 list in our combined top 21 list, which is Dopamine Nation by Annie Lemke, which basically makes the case that like we live in a world where everything is set up for wanting. Uh, in groundedness, I call it heroic individualism, where like the whole point of consumer capitalism is to make you feel like you need the next thing to be fulfilled and happy. And then once you get that thing, it's immediately on to the next one. And that's why Louis Vuitton is like one of the biggest companies in the world, even though it's just status stuff. Yep. I don't have that solution. Maybe they should read groundedness, but there are, so I guess the interesting or the, the takeaway I give from wanting is kind of similar to, to from is uh, in there. He talks about balancing autonomy and structure. And I think setting your life up so that you have that that balance allows you to not get lost. And then the other thing he talks about a lot is uh, is you know thinking through your values, but not only like thinking through them, but like ranking, prioritizing, like seeing how they impact your your life instead of the kind of here's our core values and just whatever they don't mean in anything and then the last piece of advice which i know you'll like which i really resonated with was he said you know you need to go spend some time in silence and the point there is we have so we have a barrage of influences more influences now than ever before all telling us all these voices in our head, all telling us essentially what we should want. And one of the best solutions is like unplug, get away, give your mind time to kind of reset. And um, 
find some silence. Yeah. Uh, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, tell that to my one-year-old puppy and three and a half year old kid. I actually started setting an alarm. I was sleeping a little bit later and, and this the extra sleep is obviously great, but this is like beyond seven and a half, eight hours of sleep. Um, probably helping my strength training, but I'm not a professional athlete. I'm a professional writer and coach. So I started setting an alarm at 6am just to wake up and have that hour and a half of silence. Um, and I notice a huge difference in how it, it sets the tone for my day. So love it and love anything that takes a, a groundedness kind of start with core values, define them, put blinders on to some extent and practice them approach to living. I think that's going to be a huge key. Obviously, I think that's going to be a huge key to being like truly successful in, in a, a very wanting world. All right. My fifth book, which makes 10 between the two of us, is The Shallows by Nicholas Carr. And this is just the best book on all the cost of the internet. So we're recording this on the internet. You're going to listen to it on the internet. The internet is wonderful. The internet is here to stay. The internet has infinite benefits. What we don't often talk about are the cost of the internet. And Nicholas Carr takes the internet, says, same thing as me. He's writing this book on a computer that's connected to the internet. Wonderful stuff. But just because something's wonderful doesn't mean it doesn't have areas that suck. And he helps us see what those areas that suck are. And um, this term isn't in his book, but I started using this term with coaching clients about three months ago. And I traced it back to like my reading his book at the very start of the year. And it's internet brain. So a lot of my coaching clients will experience this time where they're like, I can't really think straight. I can't pay attention to much. I'm struggling to focus. Uh, I feel kind of restless. I don't feel like down. I'm just I'm like, it's very hard to pay attention to things. And I ask them, well, it's been different. Oh, well, I'm I'm waiting for this big deal to happen or... I just submitted this white paper and I haven't heard back yet. Okay, well, what have you been doing? Spending a lot of time on the internet. And then the result is internet brain. And Nicholas Carr's entire book is basically like, if you spend too much time on the internet, then you can get internet brain, uh, which is struggling to pay attention, not being able to read long things without clicking away from them, um, just constantly kind of, expecting things to happen fast and to be fast, and then feeling like you can't be patient when they aren't. So he dives deep into the science of why this is to the case, the kind of history of it. Um, it pairs beautifully with Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death, which was on our list last year, which basically says that like we're training ourselves to be idiots that don't have any attention span. And as a result, reality TV stars will be our president. And he wrote this book in the 80s. Postman was right. Um, so this is another book in that vein. Um, I think it was great. It really helped me recommit to a deep reading habit, which is reading a hard copy book for at least X amount of minutes, X days a week, um, just as a way to not just have internet brain. So The, the Shallows by Nicholas Carr. Um, I'm not the only person that likes this book. It sold a gazillion copies. So, and for good reason, it's a great book. Well, I think you're noticing some themes on this reading list of ours. And you know what? If you want to see more of the books, if you want to see the other 10 or excuse me, 10 plus one, the bonus 11 books that we didn't talk about, check out the newsletter. If you're listening the day this podcast dropped on Wednesday, then it'll come tomorrow. So sign up for the newsletter. If you're listening after that, go to our website at thegrowtheq.com. Go check it out. See the full list. Get yourself some new books. Don't get lost on the internet. How do you do that? Doing real things. One of the real things, reading real books. Yeah, we were going to give people a bonus at the end. Should we give it to them or should we make them read our list? Whatever you think, Bradley. You know, let's give it to them. Let's represent the home team. So 
Steve and myself are represented by a wonderful literary agent, Lori Abkemeyer, and she published phenomenal books this year, um, two of which are near and dear to our heart. The first is The Practice of Groundedness, which is my book. So if you haven't yet, please check it out. Um, it's a really good book. I think it touches on all this stuff and blah, blah, blah. It's a good book. The second book, also Lori Abkemeyer book, is by our dear friend, Cal Newport. And that book is called A World Without Email. Um, it's on the list, so we'll write more details about it tomorrow. Uh, it's another phenomenal book. We didn't want to just play to the home team. Well, I can't include my own book in my top books of the year. Uh, we didn't just want to play to the home team with Cal, but uh, it's a great book. It's in our top 20 combined list. And um, it also echoes a lot of these these themes. Yes. So those are the two bonuses. All right. Wonderful books, both of them. I have to say that, but no, they're really good books. So, So check those out. If you want more books, if you you decide, you know what, I'm going to go on a reading binge, turn off the internet, you know, throw my... Turn off the internet. I love that. Turn off the internet. Throw my phone on the roof. Whatever you got to do, go read some books. Go for some walks, but read some books. Thanks for listening to the Growth Equation Podcast. Learn more about our work and find show notes at our website www.thegrowtheq.com. Follow us on Twitter at B. Stahlberg and at Steve Magnus. And if you like what you listen to, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast as this goes a long way in helping it reach others.